Oh my, we are so glad that you're here. We're going to begin a new series today. Uh, you probably have heard about it or seen a banner or such when you walked in. Our staff had yellow smiley faces this week promoting it. We're beginning a series called How Happiness Happens. And today, the first installment of this series is um, Four Ways to Miss Happy. So cue the note takers and we'll be in Philippians for weeks and weeks and weeks. We'll be saying the same thing. Turn to Philippians. We're going to walk through uh, this letter. You know, happiness is not, don't mistake, is not just a modern uh, self-obsession. Thinkers all through from the beginning of time have uh, been caught up in it. Uh, St. Augustine said that man continuously uh, moves forward toward a happy end. Um, Augustine wrote, that it's a deep desire of all mankind. You can't not want to be happy, um, he wrote. Blaise Pascal, the famous French physicist and philosopher from the 16th century, uh, said that it is, happiness is the chief end that man goes forward, that forward for, after to, to the ultimate thing that uh, we seek. Pharrell Williams said, clap your hands along with me if you feel like happiness is the truth. Justin Timberlake said, I got sunshine in my pocket and happiness uh, down in the soles of my feet. Uh, we are happy creatures. In America, there's a document that most of you are familiar with called the Declaration of Independence. And it says that you and I are uh, given as citizens of this country inalienable rights. What are they? You, you know, you can say it with me. 930 crew is really good. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One time to make sure you're awake. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, love to hear that from y'all. Notice the language. Don't you find it interesting? Uh, life, guaranteed. Liberty, guaranteed. Happiness, uh, go for it, and good luck out there. Just the pursuit of it. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that they phrase it like that? What did our founding fathers know that's so universal is that happiness can be so evasive uh, in, our, in our lives? We live in this nation where annually... Uh, $500 billion is spent each year on advertising, which is, in its essence, other people on the daily saying, if you buy this, if you buy what I have, you will be happy. But we're the richest and we're the smartest, but we're also the saddest uh, that we've ever been as a society. This gets me, this picture, this quote, this person, this comedian who was responsible for making uh, millions upon millions of people laugh, uh, for decades, I'm one of them. But you think about how he ended his life. And then uh, a few years prior to that, he said this, the great Robin Williams. I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy. Because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless. And they don't want anyone else to feel like that. That gets me. It motivates me to turn and ask you to turn for these weeks ahead, this morning and the weeks ahead to this letter written some 2,000 years ago uh, that we now call Philippians. It's four chapters in our marked Bibles, uh, hundreds and hundreds of verses, 2,000 plus words, and 16 of the words are related to joy and related to uh, our happiness. It was written by a man named Paul, and he wrote it to early followers of Jesus in a city uh, called Philippi. Today, you can go to that region and you can see remains of this civilization, this society, it was Paul's first, and it was Christianity's first congregation in all of Europe. Uh, there was a man named King Philippi, uh, King Philip rather, and King Philip uh, was from Macedonia, 
And he uh, was the father of Alexander the Great. And he came to this hard-to-pronounce, somewhat obscure place at that time. And he did what uh, people of kings of conquest do. He renamed it after himself. So it became uh, called Philippi. It's in ancient, in, it's in northern Greece, was in northern Greece. It became a Roman colony, a military outpost. That was in some 536 B.C. that King Philip came and named it such. And then in A.D. 51, Paul, Timothy, Luke, and Silas showed up on the scene for the very first time. And approximately 11 years later, Paul would pin this letter to the church at Philippi, to the Philippians. When Paul wrote the letter, he wasn't at the beach or the ocean or on sabbatical. Uh, He wasn't chillaxing somewhere of comfort, uh, contemplating on the goodness of life. In fact, he was wondering about his very own life's existence. He was, his future was up in the air. Uh, Everything was hanging in the balance. Uh, He was awaiting trial. And would he be tried and found guilty of blasphemy and treason and then sentenced to uh, really terrible uh, execution? Or would he be set free? And for him to be set free at that time would mean he could travel the Mediterranean world. How many of you have been to the Mediterranean world? It's really a fun place to travel. Paul could be killed or he could get to travel the Mediterranean world and visit his friends. I would say, wouldn't you agree, that there's a lot at stake. Honestly, in simple terms, I'd be freaking out. And Paul in this moment, and we're going to delve deeper in these weeks ahead, getting our feet wet today, something was happening inside of him that's very different than what was happening around him. And so Paul pins this letter, and we can look at it this way. A couple other shots there of what remains of Philippi in northern Greece. At this end of his life, it's a thank you letter written to friends, and he has a joyful spirit. He is, um, this letter is one of several epistles. If you come to church a lot or grew up in a church and had a Sunday school background where there were Bible teachers, you're probably like, man, that dude was in prison a lot. And I guess you could argue that it was several years, and they believe a couple of years uh, at this prison that he awaited his potential execution or release. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, I don't have it up, but I can quote it. Paul says, I was uh, continuously on the move. He sounds like Dr. Seuss. He gets into this poetic. He's like, I was, I was in dangers on the sea, dangers by, my, uh, by, by false believers, dangers uh, by the rivers, dangers by bandits, dangers by my fellow Jews, d- dangers by the Gentiles, dangers here and there, dangers in the city, dangers in the country. It was legitimate danger, and he writes this, but now he's, he's isolated. Uh, no longer able to move about. He knew the pressure of leading the churches. Um, He knew flogging and pain. He knew persecution. He knew getting stoned, not like some of you know about getting stoned, but a very literal getting stoned. He knew about this and he wrote about it, but then the grip, the vice grip of his life tightens. And so this, this thank you note, the end of his life, this thank you note, written to friends. This was a warm letter. You know, some of the letters uh, had a tone to them because if you're going to be a leader, have, have you noticed this? If you're a leader, sometimes you've got to walk into a meeting and have a tone. Sometimes you've got to correct error. Sometimes, sometimes you've got to say, man, we're lost in the weeds. We've got to get back on point. Every organization drifts. Every organization uh, has uh, bad ideas. One writer says, if you're not uh, fortified with good ideas, you'll be victimized by bad ideas. And there was a false gospel uh, that was happening in, in the world just as, as it is now. And so some of the letters, a good portion of the letters, Paul writes, uh, called the epistles or the letters simply, he writes, 
prophets to correct error, to warn of false teachers. Jesus said it before him. There will be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in and they look good, but what, y'all, they're predators. They're predators. If you read 2,000 years later, if you read today's headlines, in many of our churches, there are predators in our midst. The, the leaders have to do more than just preach and teach. We've got to uh, guard our own souls, and we've got to protect the souls of others. God has entrusted church leaders with that, and Paul took that very seriously, and there was a weight to that. And so he uh, wrote some letters with a strong tone, but this is mostly a warm tone. Now, there is a point in the second chapter, deep into it, we'll look at it soon, where he calls out a couple of women who were getting gossipy, and they were backbiting and they were threatening the unity of the church. He calls them out. He says he urges them to maintain unity. Just a quick call out. A leader has to do that because he knew something good was going on. But it's just really a very warm letter. So today, how happiness happens, there's four ways that we miss happiness. Here's uh, the first way that we miss happy. Waiting for something to happen before you are happy. In this stretch of the sermon, I want to give you both the happiness illusion and then later the happiness paradox. Uh, Waiting and waiting and waiting. Scripture affirms waiting. In fact, it says uh, many times over that we have to wait on the Lord. That's not a passive, negative, woe is me waiting. It's active, trusting, expectant, surrender. But there is a, a waiting that here is just super negative, which is, I'm going to get happy one day. And it points us to the, you know, when something happens, it points us to the happiness illusion. I will be, I'm waiting now, but I will be happy if I get what I want. And doesn't that sound like the stuff of children at Christmas? But you know, that's true of you. And it's true of me. I'm going to, you know, when I get that job, when I get that promotion, when I get that new spouse, when I get that house, when I get over that problem, when, when the fall comes and we can get past a Mississippi summer, uh, when my team wins 10 or 11 games, when this happens, I will be happy. Now, we want to distinguish um, between um, what writers call momentary happiness and, and then an enduring happiness. There's a book written years ago called Authentic Happiness. It's, let, me, let me be clear, it's, it's modern psychology. Um, I think it, it's in line with some of what Scripture says, but it points us uh, deep into this letter with some good insight that Paul's going to give us today in these weeks ahead. H, is, it stands for happiness. And again, there's momentary happiness and there's enduring happiness. Momentary happiness is a warm tropical vacation or a dinner at the trendy new hot restaurant, or a big promotion and paycheck at work. Now, let me ask you, 930 struggled a little bit in this one. Uh, Do those things bring you happiness? If you go on a warm tropical vacation, if you go to the nice new trendy restaurant, uh, hot restaurant with good friends and you have dinner, if you get a big pay raise, are are those things going to make you happy? Don't be scared to answer out loud. uh, Come on, be real, be human, people. Come on, y'all like, the answer's not Jesus, so don't speak out loud. Look, those things will make you happy. Come on, can I get an amen? In fact, James 1 says, yeah, James 1 says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with, there's, who's no, with whom there's no variation or shifting of shadow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And let me tell you, God is a giver of good gifts. And so if you know his gifts, rejoice in them, and they make you happy. But here's the trick. Uh, there's something that we seek because momentary happiness, uh, you've learned this, haven't you? It's not the goal. You can be really happy. You can be in love. You can be captured and swept off your feet. You think of that person all the time and they think of you. It's requited love. They, they love you back and you're having feelings you've never felt before, but then you get betrayed, then you get rejected, then you get let down. And what seemed to be such a gift, you know, that joy, that happiness, it's over. In fact, it's brought pain 
in your life. I remember when I was a young teenager, first time a girl ever broke my heart. I was like, oh, I could barely breathe. And I just wasn't aware of this. I was so happy, so joyful. But then this and the pain. Uh, years ago, my daughter, well, she's a junior now in college, but when she was a little girl, uh, she played at friends' houses. All my kids were there, and they were on the monkey bars, and her two brothers, one older, one younger, like they had calluses on their palms. They were such monkeys all summer, and so Haley decided uh, to get on the monkey bars to be like her friends and her brothers, and a few moments after her play, and she fell on her arm the wrong way and just, uh, excuse me, snapped it like a twig, and this happened, let me just say, on her mother's watch, not, not mine, not, never Ever would have let that happen. I'm a real hands-on parent, uh, always surveying the scene and cautious of danger. But anyway, Susan let Haley fall and, uh, and break her arm. And so we're at the hospital. Um, she texted me and minimized what had happened so I wouldn't freak out. I had a meeting that night, if you remember. So I made my way to the hospital, and the doctor was like, oh, man, this was, woo. But I was the first to sign the cast. And, you know, but look, life is fun. Life is love. Life is playful. Life is monkey bars. And then you fall. And so you and I know that the ultimate goal isn't momentary happiness. You know what scripture teaches? You hear me say this from time to time. If you've been here a year or two or more, there's joy, there's happiness, there's pleasure in sin for a season. So the goal, that's from Genesis. So the, you, know, you can go sin and have fun in the short term. The goal is not momentary happiness. All of us have tasted the mucky bars. All of us have had a warm tropical vacation or a pay raise at work or something good that has happened to us. We've tasted momentary happiness, but what we want to know is it goes away so quickly. It doesn't endure, and what we're looking for is enduring happiness. The psalmist would say it uh, thousands of years ago. I don't have it up here. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I bet he had tasted momentary happiness. But then I bet he got hurt. I bet he uh, was, you know, disappointed with the ups and downs of life. And good circumstances can come your way and then it, it moves forward. It's gone like a vapor. So the goal is enduring happiness. The S in this, so H is happiness. We said that S is the set range. This, again, is from the book Authentic Happiness. Uh, the, uh, S is referred to by these psychologists as the set range or a set point. Here's some bad news in the sermon today. Had to deliver it to the 930 service. Um, they say, those who study the human spirit, that we all have a disposition, that it's in your DNA, it, it's, it, it's related to your genes, that some people, and this is a big part of your disposition, some people are more prone to sadness and some people are more prone to happiness. I see it, uh, every group I'm in, my family, you, you can just see people, they're wired that way. Right when I present this uh, to you, I know that you know already where you are. If, you're not con if, you're, if you are confused, not clear with this, ask the person you're married to or live with or the person who knows you best. They'll let you know if you're prone to sadness by nature or prone to happiness by nature. Uh, I'll say this, and you hear me say it from time to time, because in the back of many of our minds, this whole series, and we're not going to be cheery in this, but uh, depression is a real thing. And I say this to some of you that I know and love and pastor, depression and anxiety and all, some of the best people and most courageous people I know, they're heroes to me. They battle this, but they get up and take on every day. They still continue to put both feet forward and search for meaning and purpose and find, and it doesn't mean if you battle depression, if you have a disposition towards sadness, it doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. And let me tell you what it really don't mean. It don't, really don't mean Jesus doesn't love you. So keep marching forward. Keep moving on. Let me just say that real quick. So the set range is, and here's what that means. Studies have shown that you can, you can like win a lottery and woo, euphoria, you're ecstatic, but eventually, slowly over time, you drift back 
to your set range because your disposition is towards, uh, if your disposition is towards sadness, it's going to creep back in no matter what level of happiness, momentary happiness that you've experienced because it's not settled. If you go in tomorrow and lose your job and you're down low, you're going to go back towards your settled place to your set range. It's very, very real. And they say it comprises a big part. C is circumstances. It's the kind of lifestyle you live. It's what's favorable or unfavorable. And um, this is surprising. And we just were so hard-headed. I'll, I'll admit I'm so hard-headed. I think, boy, every day I want to minimize pain and uh, maximize joy and pleasure. So is that going to be painful? I'm not going to do that. Is this going to feel good? I'm going to do that. We're prone that way, but circumstances have so little to do with enduring happiness. Very little. Like they put it in like the 15% range of it attributes to to, uh, meaningful happiness. And then the V is the most important one. It's voluntary. Let me translate that to a church uh, crowd. It is your choices. It's what you, Colossians 3, what you set your affections on. Philippians 4, it's what you put your mind on. It's your choices. It's your mind. It's your body. It's different than your temperamental disposition. This is what your internal values. This is what deep down that you say, this matters. The scripture has this thing in Galatians called the fruit of the spirit. Y'all ever heard that? The fruit of the spirit. Uh, Paul says that there are eight flavors to the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. Here's the thing. We can't conjure up those. Uh, We fake them if we live in the flesh, but we can't conjure them up. Paul is saying in Galatians 5 that the Holy Spirit of God produces it, not through your straining, not through your striving, but through your abiding. If you're running too fast, your character is not growing. You're going to have less happiness if you're going fast. If you're trying to do things on your own and pretend and fake or conjure, you know, uh, grip with your fist and go bare knuckled through life, you're going to fall short of all these virtues. Take love, for instance. If you think love is about feeling this feeling, well, what happens when you don't feel that feeling? And if you, are, if you idolize love and being in love and feeling love about another person and them feeling love's loving feelings to you, listen, you won't be willing to do the hard work of love. Love is hard work. In 1 John 4, John, the old disciple would say, we love because he first loved us. We're able to love. Love has to pervade you, and then you stay with it. Uh, You do what Scripture says. You forgive and you forbear. Uh, You do the hard work of love. If you idolize peace, remember the eagles from the 70s, I got a peaceful, easy feeling. Listen, how often do you have a peaceful, easy feeling? How often do you? Grow up if you have, if you, if, you know, just get older. Uh, it's going to be harder and harder to have that peaceful, but if you idolize it, what are you going to do when you don't feel the peaceful, easy feeling? I'll tell you, you are going to medicate yourself or you're going to uh, ignore dealing with conflict. You're going to numb yourself because you're not feeling the peaceful, easy feeling. So let me numb myself. And nowadays in the modern world, there's too many escapes for us. Can I get an amen? Too many escapes to numb and medicate ourselves from the pain of not feeling peaceful and easy if you idolize it. So there's a very big difference in love, in peace, and also in joy between uh, fluctuating feelings and settled character. And in Galatians 5, Paul said, this is a settled character thing. Uh, this is really important. There is also not just the paradox of, of, of the illusion of happiness. There's the paradox. I'll never be happy if I make happy my goal. Happiness is the byproduct of meaning, having meaning. I talked this week to some leaders. They're scared. They're scared about the world that we're living in. Quite candidly, they're scared about crime. 
And someone in the room, not named me, had enough insight to talk about a whole new young generation of boys trying to become men who are purposeless, who are meaningless, who are experiencing an idleness, and we will pay for this. We, are, we, we have to help boys become men. We have to help everybody grow up. But all of us need to find meaning in life. I joke with people, it's really not a joke, that, that churches, even though there's some chicken little skyless falling predictions, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. And I feel like I've got some pretty good job, job security because people are longing for me, meaning. You are, and I are longing to have meaning. And notice Paul in the first chapter. Here's what he said in verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me happened to me. Some of us are what we're waiting on something to happen before we get happy. He's saying, look what happened to me. It has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That's like the secret service. These are Caesar's main guys. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He didn't say his happiness. He talked about meaning. And he goes on to say this, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that true? When you see someone being bold, you want to be bold. When you see someone living an inspiring life despite their circumstances, you think, man, what a loser I am. I'm not willing to sacrifice. I'm not willing to surrender. I'm not willing to be bold and creative and pioneering and a trailblazer and a maverick. Look at my life. And Paul said, I'm inspiring other people. But listen, in Romans, he said, my ambition, the meaning of my life is to preach Christ where Christ has not been preached. Do you know that Paul had trouble getting the gospel to Rome? Remember Philippi became a Roman colony. He had trouble getting the gospel to Caesar, the most important man in the world. But guess what? He's chained to his main guys. Guess what? He's got the gospel to him. Guess what? Because he's there, because this has befallen him, there are others that are sending forth the gospel. Now, do you get what I'm saying? This could be a hard truth. It could be a very inviting for you. If you go for happy, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be. I want to. I want to come to church today. And I want to be happy. I want to go to lunch. And I, they better make me happy. The waiter and the cook and all. I want to go home. They got to make me happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. If you're going for happy, you're not going to get it. It's the paradox of happiness. But if you discover meaning, oh, look out! Happiness can follow but it'll be more in your settled character, not in your fleeting feelings. The second thing beyond just waiting for something to happen to make you happy is comparing yourself to other people. Look what Paul would say in this first chapter. These, today and next week will be in the first chapter. Then when we get in the second chapter, we'll be going through it like that. Some indeed preach Christ uh, from, this is verse 15, 16, and 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And look at this turn. Look at what you don't expect. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Those are two of the 16 times Paul says, I am rejoicing. And he, he says, you know, you can spill your life out comparing yourself. But here's the reality, and don't you know this is true? I'm satisfied with what I have until you have something I don't have. Now think about your life. How, how often has that been true? We're going to look at some monkeys, literally some monkeys in just a second. Cue it up. But what about you? I'm not calling you a monkey, but I'm just saying, is this, how true is this of you? You're satisfied, and then you're satisfied with what you have until someone has something you don't have. Take a look. At this experiment, it's without sound, but uh, the uh, experimenter 
was giving rocks to these two monkeys. And the monkeys would take the rock, or I'm sorry, they would give him the rock, and then they would get a cucumber. And there's also grapes. So notice what he does. He gives this cucumber, that, that monkey gives him his rock, and he gives him a grape. He gives him a cucumber. Look what he does. grape he's processing he gives him the rock and cucumber <laughs> so here's what I here's what I want to say to you look I I like my car until you pull up in your car and then I'm throwing cucumbers North Carolina State University did a study of happy and unhappy people related to how they compare. And they went in with this philosophy that uh, unhappy people compare up and happy people compare down. In other words, unhappy people look at people who have more than them. And happy people look at people who have less than them. Some of y'all think that's what a mission trip. Go over, go over to the third world and they don't have much. And uh, I'm happy. Okay. Here's what they discovered. They discovered that they were wrong. They discovered that happy people... Uh, they don't compare. Happy people don't compare to people above them and they don't compare to people below them. They have, I love the language of this study from NC State, they have an internal set of values that's a vastly different yardstick for living. How good is that? An internal set of values that's a vastly different yardstick for living. They're not comparing themselves with other people. Proverbs 14.30 would say, envy rots the bones. It is not healthy for you. You will not be happy if you're comparing yourself to other people. And there were people not outside the church. Hear me, church. These people in Philippians 1, he wasn't referring to people outside the church. He was talking to people in the church. And they were comparing themselves to Paul. They were comparing themselves uh, to other people. The church at Corinth would compare Paul versus Apollos versus the other people. And all this comparison, I've never met someone that spent time comparing and they were happy. Don't fall victim to it. It's the second way this morning uh, where you won't, you'll miss happy is by comparing yourself to other folks. The third one is going at it alone. This letter, what did we say? It's at the end of his life. It's a thank you letter. It's written to friends with a, with a joyful spirit. He's not correcting a doctrine. He's not dealing with heresy, a bad doctrine. Uh, he's not dealing with much um, disunity at all. It's just warmth. And he says in this passage, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer. Here he goes again with joy. It's, it is a happy prayer despite what's going on around him. Do you know why these people gave money? These people prayed. These people were partners. These people cared about him. These people cared for other people. It's easy to think of Paul. I don't know why I did this. Maybe you've never done this, but if you've been around the church a while and read your Bible some, you think maybe Paul was this brilliant guy. He certainly was, but you also think maybe he was difficult and he was cranky because a lot of brilliant people are difficult and cranky. A lot of people that are right hurt people. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus was always right and he never hurt people. And sometimes you think Paul was just, you know, he talked about you emasculated males in Galatians. I'm like, woo, okay, that's tough. That's almost PG-13. He calls people, you know, there's a, but there's a brilliance there. And there's a protective father, a, protect, a prophet there, a blazing prophet. But there's a loving spiritual father to Timothy and Titus and these other people. He deeply uh, deeply cares about them. Another study I was reading this week talked about how um, um, 
they studied happiness in people in relationships. And they went in with another hypothesis thinking that the people that were the happiest is that people who had someone who looked out for them, watched over them, and cared for them. But they discovered something slightly different, that the happiest people relationally were the people who themselves watched out and cared. They had someone that they watched out and cared for and looked over. Remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. When Paul writes this, Philippians 1, if you have an open Bible, you'll see this. All the other letters, he says, Paul, uh, grace and peace to the church at, to the people there. And he says, grace and peace, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But this letter is different. It's very warm, as I said. But he says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. Because in Philippi, we'll get into this next week uh, or in two weeks, but they they were status-seeking people. They were image-conscious. They were climbing the ladder. And they thought even their relationships were transactional. Even their relationships were about stepping over other people to get what they wanted. But the happiest people are the people who serve, the people who say, I can be a slave. I don't have to be high and exalted. In fact, I'll go up and I'll go under to love and to serve other people. One of the ways we serve is through encouragement. Look at this. Paul was an encouraging person. He says, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Look at the beautiful words there and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Y'all know Paul should have said y'all instead of you all. But look at the other words. Forgive him for that. But look at this. Convinced remain, continue, uh, progress, joy. Look at these beautiful words of relationship. In Hebrews 3.13, it's one of my life passages, so you hear it from me quite a bit if you're a regular FC attender, but encourage one another daily so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Before the first service, a good friend of mine was telling me about someone he bumped into last night at an event, and the guy's a little bit older than me, and he told me, hey, tell me about so-and-so. And it was kind of a strange conversation because uh, he experienced this guy really in his normal conversation. But you hear me preach this from time to time related to this verse. But there aren't a lot of people my age who aren't angry, bitter, and cynical. Be careful that you soften your heart. Be careful that you have encouragement in your life. Would you look one more time and how often do you need encouragement? What does the scripture teach you? You know how often you need it? More than monthly, more than weekly, certainly more than annually. You need it every day. And uh, we, the only way to stay away from the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of our heart, the only way to stay away from being angry, bitter, and cynical as you grow older is to have encouragement, to be encouraged. And Paul wrote and he loved that they tell us in relationships there needs to be a five-to-one ratio. People that study relationships say that there needs to be five encouraging, love-oriented, truth-filled, positive comments to overcome something dark and negative and mean-spirited. Now, the Bible does have a word for hard talk. It's called admonishment, and we need to admonish one another. Uh, not too long ago in my own life, I got admonished. It hurt for the first few minutes. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be a better leader because of these words that came my way. So the goal is not to just pepper each other with pleasant, positive things. Sometimes we need to say the hard things, and so many of us avoid those hard things. Like I said earlier, if you idolize peace, uh, you're going to be more prone to self-medicate. You're going to be more, more prone to avoid conflict. But we need that. If you evaluated your own communication patterns with the people that you love, are you an encourager? What's your ratio? Is it five to one? Is it healthy like that? Or have you slipped from that? Has it become painful in that relationship? Has it become habitual? You'll suck the life right out of it. The last thing besides, going, besides waiting for happiness and comparing yourselves with other people and going it alone is embracing pessimism as your general outlook. As our team comes up, we're going to close in prayer. We're going to have the invitation this morning and open this front part of the room up for prayer as we did in the first service. 
We're going to sing this beautiful song. The team's going to sing it over us, at least the first part. And then we'll ask you to stand and sing with us as we have a prayer of invitation. But I want to close on this four point, embracing pessimism as your general outlook. You will miss happy if you wait on things to make you happy. You'll miss happy if you compare yourself to others. You'll miss happy if you go it alone. And you'll miss happy if you embrace pessimism as your general outlook. There's a difference, they say, between little optimism and big optimism. Little optimisms, we're full of them. Little optimisms, hey, we're going to get a good parking place today. Hey, the preacher's going to preach a good sermon, finally. Those are little optimisms. Big optimisms is what so few people have. Big optimisms are, you ever, do you know anybody in COVID? They're like, this is the greatest time to be alive. We've got the best opportunity to be the church or what, you know, like, ugh. Big optimism people are game changers. Big, you know, going through something difficult, but look what God could have something bigger. This is hard. Yeah, well, are we going to sit around and talk about the hard? Are we going to feel bad about ourselves? Are we going to predict when we can get out of this hard? Are we going to predict what God's going to do? Or are we going to experience God in this? Are we going to see God do something through this? Have you ever asked a friend or loved one, you knew they were going through something hard, and you say, hey, how are you doing? And they responded this way. They said, I'm doing good under the circumstances. And here's what I would say about Paul. He wasn't under any circumstances. He wouldn't use that language. He was going through something that none of us would sign up for, but I don't think he saw himself as under the circumstances. He saw himself in Christ. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed See the meaning there? It's not like, am I going to die or am I going to travel the Mediterranean world eating all the food and visiting friends? That wasn't what he put his hopes up. He said, I will not be at all ashamed. But with that full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Some of us think that the most important thing about our lives is self-preservation. It's a bigger cause. And then the the second most famous thing he said, besides Philippians 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That'll be week five. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was full of joy and he was full of gratitude. We're going to sing about this joy and this gratitude now. And then I want to ask you to, I want to ask you to listen to the team and just let them sing it over you. There's a moment I think they talk about stand, you know, just Lauren will prompt you to stand and I'm going to prompt you to come and pray or be prayed for. Uh, we've, got, we've got time and we'll get you out on time today. So um, would, you, would you let God speak to you today? And maybe it's something directly that the preacher said. Sometimes he uses a broken vessel like me. Maybe what you've been convicted of today is you're wait, you've been waiting for stuff to happen for you to be happy. Or you've been comparing yourself to other people. That's a no win. Nobody wins. Or you've been going it alone. You haven't gotten a group. You haven't opened up your life. You haven't said, I want to be known. Or maybe you've been embracing pessimism as your general outlook on life. And today, maybe there's a conviction uh, to live different. Let this song be sung over you. Let it minister to you now.